Thank you for tuning in to Cobblestone Community Church today. We hope this message blesses you. If you need prayer for anything, please email us at prayer at cobblestonechurch.com. Now here's the message. So this week, thank you, uh, we have been reading out of the book of John recently. So we have a Bible reading plan for those of you who don't know. We're reading one chapter of the New Testament five days a week. And this past week, we read John 13 through 17, which is a really cool uh, passage of Scripture. It's really unique. Um, and the reason why it is unique is because John the Apostle is writing to us what it was like for his last evening with Jesus before Jesus went to the cross. Now, um, I know that many of us, I know I have, often felt jealous of the apostles, right? Like, I sure would have liked to spend a few years seeing Jesus on the flesh, hearing his words like into my ear, you know, having all these conversations. Um, I would have loved to spend an evening with Jesus, right? Um, and actually what John wrote for us, those chapters 13 through 17, is exactly what it was like for that last evening, right? If we ever wonder what it's like to sit down and have a meal with Jesus and spend a few hours with him after that meal, we can find out. Open John, go to 13 through 17. You will see exactly what it was like. That's actually the reason why I'm sitting on this chair. My back doesn't hurt. I can stand up okay. I just kind of want to, as I discuss about this, this uh, passage, I kind of wanted to, it to feel a bit more conversational. Uh, I know that I'm on a stage with a mic and it's not really a conversation, but I, I was at least attempting to uh, just communicate what it may have been like for the apostles to spend that evening with Jesus, right? I mean, who wouldn't like to, you know, go with, to, with Jesus to Cafenia? Like, Cafenia with Jesus sounds awesome, right? Uh, and that's what the apostles had, and that's what John wrote down for us. Now, it's not that just it's because they were there and they saw and they heard it and they wrote down for us that it's cool, but it was because it was their last night with him, their last evening with him. That's what makes this passage extra special. It's one of Jesus' best friends on earth telling us, like, the last day I spent with that guy, this is what it was like. Um, and those of us who have lost somebody that we love, we re usually remember very well our last time with them. It's just something that's like burned in our heart and in our memory, you know. Um, something happened this month that um, really kind of helped me understand that a little bit more and just communicate that to me. So last uh, September, my grandma passed away and I flew back home for the funeral and I stayed at her house for a few days. And uh, the night before I flew back, I started just going around grabbing stuff that I wanted to keep to help me remember her. And I had noticed that there were some journals, some just like regular notebooks that she had journaled in. So um, I grabbed two of them. Just, I just picked up two random ones, put them in my luggage, and didn't even really look at them. After I got home, I discovered that one only had one page written in it, so that was sort of a fail. And then uh, the other one, though, was full of stuff and full of prayers, but I had a really hard time reading it at first because it was just too fresh. Her passing was too fresh. 
Um, so this past month, through a series of circumstances, I actually ended up opening that journal. And it was around the same time I was preparing for the sermon. And um, I noticed by the dates that I think it was the last journal she ever wrote in. Like, it was her last journal. It was her last prayers. And just the value of that journal just skyrocketed to me because I, I have the last thing that she left on earth. So I think that we can appreciate the full meaning of that passage if we understand John's heart behind writing it. It was like his last evening with Jesus. And if you uh, compare some of others of uh, John's writings in the New Testament, and you compare it with these chapters, like, I think he thought about this night, like, for the rest of his life. I think he just rehearsed these words over and over again. They, not that the rest of the Bible isn't precious, but there's something unique about this passage, something very precious and tender about this passage. So um, I wanted to just talk about a few things uh, from this passage and how the Lord has taught me um, some of, of these truths in hopes that it will encourage you in your own walk with the Lord. Uh, basically, Jesus is telling his disciples key truths and, and key things that he wants them to remember and live by after he's gone, which is our situation, right? So it does us well to know what these truths are. Now, before I jump into it, um, I, I know for myself I have a very analytical mind, and I kindly criticize everything that I hear in my own head uh, all the time. And uh, if you're like me, you're like, well, if this all happened in one evening, then why is there five chapters in the Bible about it, right? So I, I want to address that for like 30 seconds for those of you who are like me, and then you can like relax, and then we'll move on. Uh, so uh, when, the, when the book of John, and really every book of the Bible was written, there were no chapters, the authors of the Bible never added the chapters and the verses in there. It was just a scroll of text, okay? In fact, the, ch the chapter numbers were not added to the Bible until like 1224 or something like that. So 1,200 years after Jesus' death was when the chapter numbers were added. And then 300 years after that, the verse numbers were added, Okay, so the chapter numbers and the verse numbers aren't really like part of the Bible Bible. They're in addition to the Bible. Now, I'm not trying to start a rebellion. You don't need to like sharpie out all the numbers in your Bible. But I'm just trying to say like they're in addition. When the authors of the scripture wrote the scripture, they did not break it up into chapters. So it's just good to keep that in mind when you're reading the Bible. The numbers are not divine. Okay, it was a British guy and a French guy who added the numbers. It wasn't even like a team of people, okay? So all of that to say, if I think if John was writing his book in the way that we write modern books, I think that chapters 13 through 17 would be one chapter because it all happened the same night, okay? That's all I'm trying to say. So anyways, let's talk about some of these lessons that Jesus wants us, wanted his disciples to know after his his uh, departure. Okay, what does it mean to walk with God when God is, doesn't seem to be on earth anymore? Uh, so if we open to John 13, verse 36, okay, we're going to start there. John 13, verse 36. 
All right. So uh, 13, 36 says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? So here's the thing that was happening, okay? Jesus had been telling his disciples that he was going to die on a cross. He was going to be beaten, uh, and, but then he was going to be resurrected three days later. Uh, they weren't really listening to him, though. Peter at one point even says, this is never going to happen to you. And the reason, I think, why they didn't really take that to heart was because they were watching Jesus do miracles, raise people from the dead, multiply bread. The crowds are following him. They're like, we're in the middle of revival. What are you talking about? Like, it's all going to go down. Like, this is like power, blessing, favor, increase, man. This is what we're going to get. None of the suffering stuff. Uh, but Jesus is like, no, suffering is a part of the kingdom. Uh, but they weren't really grasping it. So we get to the last day, right, before Jesus goes on the cross. So Jesus uh, sort of changes his tune or his language, so to speak, that he's using to speak to the disciples. And he says, I'm going away, as in like I'm going on a really long trip. And uh, because that's the only way he can get th through to them, okay? So Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Right? Like, why are you leaving? And Jesus answered him, why, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Uh, I, I know that sometimes when we're just reading, it just feels like this is just part of the conversation, but isn't really a key thing. I think this is a key truth that we need to remember. Jesus is telling Peter, you are not ready to die on the cross for me. That's what going away means, right? He's only using that language because they're not listening to him. So he's using the going away language. He's saying, you're not ready to die on the cross with me, um, but you will later, okay? So what does that mean? Um, I think what this means is that Jesus is telling Peter, I know that you love me, but I know that your love is not mature but I am going to get you to the point where your love is mature, where you would be willing to die on the cross for me. Okay? Now, a key thing to remember here is we often, when we realize our own weakness, we say, oh, I'm a bad Christian. I don't really love God. I'm a hypocrite. I'm a fake. Blah, 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 blah. That's not what Jesus tells Peter, is he? He says, you're not ready for that right now, but I'm going to get you there. You see, our love for God is weak, but that doesn't mean it's not real. Okay? Fake and weak are worlds apart in God's view. Okay? Jesus even tells Peter later on in the Garden of Gethsemane, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we tend to go around and say, oh, but the flesh is weak all the time. He said the spirit was willing. He sees the willing spirit. And Jesus saw the willing spirit in Peter's heart. And he says, you're not at a mature place yet, but I am going to get you there. Of course, Peter doesn't get any of it, right? So Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Now, Peter usually gets a reputation of being very impulsive because uh, he says things all the time. Uh, and it is probably true I do think, though, that we give Peter sort of a bad rap that he doesn't deserve. 
I think Peter was in, like a total radical follow-through kind of guy because he left his career, he left his financial security to follow Jesus, and he followed Jesus for three years all up and down that country. He followed Jesus when the Pharisees were trying to kill him. He followed Jesus when the crowds were following Jesus. He followed Jesus when the crowds were leaving Jesus. He followed Jesus through all the controversy. He followed Jesus once the Pharisees started kicking Jesus' disciples out of the synagogues. He kept following Jesus. Like, this guy was hardcore. Uh, he, he was a follow-through kind of guy. And I understand why Peter would say, what do you mean I can't follow you now? What have I been doing these last three years? I left everything to follow you. Um, now, Peter was mistaken about his commitment, right? About the depth of his commitment to Jesus. He thought he was ready to die for Jesus when uh, he really wasn't yet, uh, which is what Jesus was trying to tell him, but he wasn't getting it. Uh, and of course, Jesus is so kind but also incredibly honest, right? He never even hints at anything that could be construed as a lie. So he says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So I think this was extremely troubling to Peter because, and to all the disciples because basically... They're having a Passover meal with Jesus, and Jesus tells them two horrible things. I'm leaving. And he says the second thing, you're all betraying me tonight, as in a few hours. Like, everything's going to happen so quickly, and before you even know it, everything will feel like it fell apart in just a matter of hours. Total surprise. You can't even see it coming. And I think they were troubled. I think they were upset. Um, I know I would be because they just got the news. Jesus is leaving. He's doing something we don't understand. It's going to be hard. And he's telling us we're about to betray him. And they were troubled. And if you compare, you know, the passages in the other Gospels, Peter says, no, I'm not going to do that. And all the apostles are like, no, we're not going to do that. And I think it was just their human frailty so freaking out about what they had just heard. They just couldn't accept it. They weren't willing to listen to it because it was too much. It was too much bad news. Now, it's in this context of these two terrible pieces of information that Jesus says the following sentence, which I know is in the next chapter, but remember, when John wrote this, it's all one thing, right? It's after Jesus tells Peter, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times, that Jesus says the following sentence, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. So basically Jesus is saying to them, you're going to be really upset because I'm going to do something you don't understand, and you're going to be really upset because you're going to fail me, and you're going to fail me miserably. And He's telling them, don't let these things overwhelm you, trouble you so much. Take control. Don't let these things trouble you. Instead of putting your faith in your commitment to me, put your faith in my commitment to you. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Okay. So I'd like to tell you a little story about how I feel like the Lord has taught me this truth. 
Not that I feel like I have it in fullness, but um, to some degree at least. So many eons ago, <laughs> it feels like a long time ago, although I'm sure it wasn't, but um, I had some friends who wrote me into going into this conference, and long story made short, I really, I started listening to this preacher. His name was Mike Bickle. I really like him. Uh, he's an awesome man of God. And uh, I started, after this conference, I started listening to this preacher regularly. And one thing that Mike used to say was that, um, and he didn't use these words, but our dreams and our goals in life are symptomatic of our truest values, right? Our goals in life are symptomatic of our truest values. So, for example, um, you will often meet many Christians who have career goals. They're not sinful by any means, but we dream about becoming a doctor, opening our own business, you know, opening our coffee shop, being a painter, whatever it is. You know, we have goals about careers. We have goals for our family. I want to get married, have three kids, and then we're going to save money and build our house the way we want, things like that. We have dreams about uh, vacations, and uh, we have dreams about hobbies. We invest in these dreams. We plan for them. Um, and then if we are really spiritual, we have dreams about ministry, right? The things we're going to do for the Lord and how many people we're going to reach and all these things that we are going to do for Him. And none of those things are bad. None of those things are sinful. And often they come from a pure heart, so they're not bad. But uh, still, you will hardly meet a Christian when you ask them, what's the dream of your life? They can hardly articulate a dream about their relationship with God. And Mike used to say, what's your vision for your life with God? Where do you want to be in God when you're in your 80s? And, you know, he'd say things, you ever dream about how humble you want to be? Do you dream about the level of intimacy you want to have with Jesus? Is that part of your value system? And man, I used to feel so convicted. I mean, that stuff would just hit me. And, you know, in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees God, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people with unclean lips. That's how I felt. I felt like that because... I loved God, and it was real, but he wasn't the most important thing to me. And I could tell because my mind was constantly occupied with other goals. Uh, so I, I decided to change that. And, you know, feeling so convicted by what Jesus says uh, that the first and the greatest thing that any human being could ever do in life was to love God with everything that they have. It just so struck me because I could potentially, say, lead a million people to Jesus and end up seeing him, and, and he could tell me, your life wasn't great. You didn't love me with everything you had. Jesus, in fact, said very clearly that many who are last will be first, and many who are first who seem first in this life, will be last. It will be a shock. And he used the word many. There are many people who appear to be first who are going to be last 
because we don't live, we don't know what a great life is. We don't know what his definition of a great life is. We don't live by his definition of what a great life is. And he never says anywhere that a life of impact is a great life. Nowhere in the Gospels. Uh, nowhere in the New Testament does it say that. Jesus said that greatness was a life of love, obedience, and humility. That's what greatness is to God. And I just feel so convicted by that. And I, I just, I committed myself, I am going to live a great life by God's standard. I am not going to live a great life by mine, or by the world's standard, or by my church's standard, or by anybody's standard. I'm gonna, I want to live a life that's great in God's eyes. What I discovered, though, real quick, is that I sucked at it. I was horrible. It was terrible. Uh, I was good at doing the nice Christian thing, but this whole, like, intimate relationship with Jesus thing, I mean, I was no good at it. I, you know, the more I prayed, the more oppressed I felt. It's like I'm looking at the ceiling, and I'm trying to pray, but it's like, it's like the words are slapping me back somehow, coming back down. This is awful. I hate this. Like, this isn't working. This is supposed to work, and it's not working. And I used to feel really disheartened uh, by my own inability to experience where all these awesome preachers that I was listening to was supposed to be the true Christian life. And my heart was troubled. And I feel like I can identify with the disciples a little bit. I was troubled by my own weakness. I was troubled by my own failure because I really wanted to do the right thing. And I just didn't know what to do because it wasn't working. And it was one of those days where I felt extremely discouraged that um, I used to have a roommate. He was very spiritual, and he was reading some book. I don't even remember what the name of the book was. Um, I opened the book, and I just started reading uh, a random page. And there was a sentence. It's the only thing I remembered, but it just uh, so stuck with me. It, the sentence was, by perseverance, even the snail reached the ark. Okay, so by perseverance, even the snail reached the ark. And the Holy Spirit really spoke to my heart at that moment because um, I realized at that moment that that's exactly what I was. I was a snail. I was dull, dense, um, always believing, never experiencing, always hungry, never feeling fed. I mean, it wasn't working. I was supposed to be moving forward, but after a few hours, it still looked like I was in the same exact spot, just like a snail. And um, what struck me, though, is that I understood, especially over time, that if I just didn't quit, I was going to win. And even if, you know, the, the ark analogy here is about Noah's ark, how the animals had to get to Noah's ark. The snail probably had to start early, you know, because uh, it, it took it a long time to get there. And I was like, you know, even if I'm like, if the door's closed and I'm climbing up the actual ark as the rain drops, like, I'm just going to keep going. I'm just not going to quit, you know. But that realization that I actually was a snail was was amazing to me because 
it, I slowly started to teach myself not to compare myself to other awesome Christians. I was encouraged by them, and I would get vision from them, but I would not compare myself to them because they were cheetahs, great for them. I wasn't born that way, you know what I mean? I, I was a snail, and I wanted to be encouraged by them, but I just would, I started teaching myself not to let my mind go down that way. And literally, guys, I'm, for years, I am not lying when I say this, for years, I told myself that sentence every day, by snail, even the, per- the by perseverance, even the snail reached the ark. For years, like five, six, seven, eight years, I don't know, but it was a long time, every single day. I'm sure there were days that I missed and weeks that I missed, but I reminded myself of that truth every day, every day. And what I did inadvertently is what Jesus was telling his disciples to do here. Let not your hearts be troubled by your own weakness. And Jesus is not saying don't repent, don't feel godly sorrow. That's not what he's saying. But don't be overcome by your own failures. Don't be overcome by your own weakness. And I had to teach my heart that. And I wanted God to just take it away. And there are moments and seasons of grace where he does that. But he told them, you have to teach your heart that. You do it. You exercise that, and I will come in behind you and bless you in that way. Um, And what I also started doing is not comparing myself to my own expectations. Uh, That is a killer for our spiritual lives. We have all these, I'm going to do this and that, and I'm going to be this and that and that and that. And we set ourselves up for failure by these unrealistic expectations for our spiritual walk with the Lord. And... The only way I could move forward after realizing those things is that I had to believe that God was going to get me to the end, which is also what Jesus says, right? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Teach your heart not to be overcome by your own failures. Not in a dismissive way, but teach your heart to trust in God. Your commitment to God is not bigger than his commitment to you. You can't make it there based on your own commitment. It's not going to work. And that's what I taught myself. And what I realized with that is that God is an excellent leader of terrible disciples. Okay? Next time the devil tells you you're an awful Christian, I would just say, what else is new? Okay? He leads awful Christians to greatness in his sight all the time. He's been doing it for thousands of years. Okay, thanks for letting me know what I already know, devil. Now go away, okay? Uh, I was a snail. Frankly, to this day, I think I'm really slow about a lot of things that the Lord wants me to learn. Um, But I know this, and this is a good catch. I'm immensely loved. I discovered this as I did my little self-training exercise about being a snail that wasn't going to quit, is that God loves me, therefore I am already successful. Okay? I am loved by the infinite being who created the universe. Do I really need anything else? 
do I really need to get to this point in my Christian life so I can be happy with myself? No. I'm already successful at the beginning of the journey because I'm loved by an eternal God. And I've come to accept that my love for him is always weak and it's always little. But he loves weak love so much. There's no way that anything that we could ever do to compare to the immensity of his love. He loves little offerings so much. And I learned to be free. I, le- I taught my heart to be free, to delight, to love his love, to enjoy, to bask in it, to allow myself to marinate in it, and to just be his. And that's good enough. I can come, I actually, after a few years, I started beginning my prayers saying, here I am, your favorite little snail. And I really did that because it's true. I'm weak and I'm little and I'm slow, but his heart is completely for me. So what else do I need? What else do you need? Right? Jesus wanted his disciples not to be so overcome by their weakness that they couldn't get up anymore. He wanted them, after they failed, to be able to get up and keep walking because he was for them. And their failures couldn't change that. We can't change his heart. Um, I want to skip down to verse 4, John 14, verse 4. You know, Jesus telling them, I'm going away. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Put your faith in me. As you go on this journey, it's going to feel like I'm gone. Put your faith in me. And then he says the following, and you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know, the, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Such a logical response, right? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And here's the thing. We often think of this verse as evangelistic, which it is, but Jesus was saying this to people who already believed in him, right? Why tell them I'm the way if knowing that he's the way, all that that means is praying a prayer one day. There's a lot more to Jesus being the way. And what Jesus was telling them is, The way you live from now on is the same way you've been living. You walk with me. I am the way. You listen to my truth. You live the life that I lived. Right? That's the way to move forward in life. Now, naturally, there's a question, how am I supposed to follow him if I can't see him? Which I'm sure that the disciples were asking, and we're going to get to that in a minute. Um, But we got to remember that our goal in life is to walk with Jesus. It is not to do this and to do that, to do this, to do that. I know that when I encounter trials, I often go, why is this happening, right? But I actually know the answer. I just don't remember. The answer is, so I can know Jesus more. (laughs) It's always the answer. Why am I getting blessed? Why am I going through trial? So I can know Jesus more. The way to live life is to walk with Jesus. There's no other way to live life. 
Again, he was saying this to his own disciples, not to unbelievers. We often get distracted about this, and we need to remind ourselves over and over and over again, I need to walk with Jesus through seasons of blessing, through seasons of trial, through boring seasons of life. Whatever it is, I need to walk with Jesus. Skipping down to verse 11. Uh, Jesus said, Believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So the word works there, if you compare it to the other times it shows up in the book of John, means miracles. Okay, so when Jesus says the works that I do, he's talking about his miracles. Um, so what Jesus, you know, one lesson that we can remember as we are walking through this journey, when we become overcome by the things that the Lord does that we don't understand, or our own weaknesses and our own failures, we need to remember his works or his miracles, which are the things that he's done in our lives, right? Because life has a way of making us question God's heart. It really does. But if we stop and remember what he's done, what he does leads us to who he is, right? Why did Jesus do this and this and this in my life? It's a reflection. It's an outflow of his character. And if I take the miracles that he's done in my life and I follow them through to their real meaning, I will be reminded of his character. And I will be able to put my trust in him again, right? That, this is what Jesus is saying uh, when he says, uh, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. At least believe in the miracles. Start there and work your way. Follow that thought process through to where it leads you back into his character. But he also says something else. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. See, geez, there's no way that we can live the Christian walk without God's intervention, without his power, without his miracles. And God wants you to live a life full of miracles. You know, John says later, in the book, that Jesus did so many miracles, they couldn't write them all down. And I think that's the way that God wants to live our lives, that there's so much God intervention in our lives that we just can't testify about it all, and we can't write it all down. Miracles, small and great, okay? Um, and when I was preparing uh, the sermon, I really felt like some of us don't really have an expectation for God to do miracles in your life. And I'd like to tell you that he does. He says right here, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. I'm not just talking about fantastical miracles, even though I am certainly including them. But do you believe that your life is filled with God's intervention? Do you see his hand if not, that's okay. Ask him for it. The Bible says in the book of James that we do not have because we do not ask. If you ask with expectation and faith, 
God will start doing things in your life that you will know and you will remember and you won't, it'll lead you back into his character. It'll soothe the fear, soothe the anger and remind you of who he truly is. So ask God for his miracles in your life and ask again and again and again and again and I know you'll see it. Skipping down to verse 13, um, Jesus said, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, Jesus said something really remarkable here. And I hope I don't make anybody upset when I say this, but at first glance, it feels like he's lying, right? Because he said, um, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I don't know about you, but I have asked for many things, and I've ended my prayers in Jesus' name, and he didn't do it. It's a fact, like it is undeniable. And I think that that's true of most of you either, of you too. So how do we reconcile that, right? And so uh, often in Christianity, we get camps to like really emphasize this, this, and you know, oh, it's a faith issue, it's this and that. And then you get camps who read that verse and go, ah, and we just move on, right? And we don't talk about it, right? We don't really deal with it. Um, I don't think we have to do either of them. I personally have two answers that satisfy my heart with regards to this. I'll share it with you, and whatever happens, happens. Uh, but one thing is um, Jesus was talking to a group of 12 Jewish guys, okay? And in Jewish culture, when you say somebody's name, it is indicative of that person's character, okay? So, for example... Um, you know, often when couples are thinking about names for their kids, they'll say, what about whatever? And there's somebody or the wife will say, no, I had a third cousin who had that name and I don't ever want my kid to have that name, you know, whatever. We have a little bit of that association in our culture, right? I remember my first year of teaching, I had a student whose name was Angel. And I'm a high school teacher, by the way. And he was nothing like his name. And uh, I remember him very clearly to this day. Uh, and, you know, like, his name was not indicative of his character, at least not at that point in his life, okay? Uh, but in Jewish culture, that was, a, that was a major thing. So that's why when the Psalms say, praise his name, uh, they're not just saying, yay, God, they're saying praise his character, praise his heart, praise what he's like. That's what that means. So when Jesus is saying, if you pray anything according to my name, he's not saying, add in Jesus' name to the end of all your prayers. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. I do that. But that's not really what he's saying. What he's really saying is, pray things that are according to my heart, according to my character, and I will do them. Um, the other thing that I think we need to realize is the next sentence, right? We often isolate verses in Scripture, and we don't look at the context of what's going on. Now, Jesus said, I think it's verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And what does he say next? If you love me, you will keep my commandments, okay? I believe 
that the highest anything that Jesus is talking about here is love that leads us to maturity, to mature obedience of Jesus. It's what he had told Peter in the beginning, right? You can't follow me now, but you'll follow me later. And what he's telling Peter here is if you ask for that, I'm going to do it, Peter. If you ask for that kind of love, I'm going to accomplish it in your heart. Now, follow this, this train of thought with me. We, uh, I'm not going to open there, but most of us know the story of Solomon. Second Chronicles 1, uh, Jesus appears to Solomon in a dream and says, Solomon, what do you want? Ask me for, there's the magic word, anything, and I'm going to do it for you. Now, Solomon looks at the Lord and says, you know, you gave me this job to be king, and I uh, am young, and I'm nervous about it, so please give me wisdom to lead your people. And God says to Solomon, wow, what a nice selfless request. I'm so generous, Solomon. I'm not just going to give you a little bit of wisdom. I'm going to give you like tons of wisdom, and I'm going to add some money and health with it so you get to live a really long life. Um, now, that's a good prayer meeting that you walk out with, with lots of wisdom, lots of money, and lots of health, right? That's, that's like a score. Um, that's why it's in the Bible. It's like one of the best ones. Uh, anyways, that was just a joke. Uh, but uh, the thing in the body of Christ that we don't realize is that Jesus has done for all of us the same thing he did for Solomon, he is saying right here, ask me anything, what do you want? And what has happened in the body of Christ, right? There are those of us who go around this and just ignore it. And then there are those of us in the body of Christ, there are streams in the body of Christ that have emphasized the aspect of faith, sometimes to an extreme, right? Where God is like... Uh, a gumball machine. Put a coin in there. Your coin is your faith, and just keep on with the faith, and you're going to get it. You just name it, and you claim it, and you're going to get it no matter what. Um, and I am not trying to criticize anybody, uh, but we often, you know, the pendulum goes way one way or way the other way, and we don't know how to live a, like a balanced life. Um, here's the thing, though. When we emphasize the faith that we get what we want by having faith, we're not even rising to Solomon's prayer request, right? Here's Solomon over here. We're way down here because we want the stuff. I want the stuff. I want the stuff. I want the stuff. I want the stuff, right? And God has released many of his resources, many of his power, much of his power to his people who have faith in him and faith in his name. But what Jesus is saying here is that Solomon didn't even get there. What there is, is love, okay? He says, if you ask me for anything, I will do it. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And this night, okay, John 13 through 17, Jesus mentions prayer four times. Every single time. The context of, the, of the talking about prayer is love that leads to obedience. Go check it out this week. Find those passages. It's a major hint that what he's talking about, what he wants us to pray about, is love. 
And here's some more to really drive that point home. What is God's name? If he says, if you ask anything in my name, what is God's name? Well, his name is his character, right? What's he like? 1 John 4, 16 says that God is love. That is who he is. That is his name. One of my favorite verses in Scripture, Song of Solomon 8, 6, says that the very flame of God is love. Nowhere else in Scripture, as far as I can see, uh, are we told what the very flame of God is. It's love. That is his name. That is his name. That is the highest anything that he wants us to ask for. You see, Peter said, I want to follow you everywhere. And Jesus said, okay, then ask me for it, and I will get you there. Ask me for the highest anything, and I will do that in you. But ask for it. Cooperate with me. Walk with me. Believe that I can work that miracle in your life. That's what Jesus is saying here. The highest anything that we can ask for is a heart of love that is willing to obey him and even die with him on a cross. That's the highest desire that he wants us to have. He wants us to go way past what Solomon asked for. He has given all of us that opportunity. If you ask me anything in my name, in accordance to my heart, I will do it. You know, and then Jesus ends that night on John 17 with a prayer. And what does he pray about? Love, 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 love. That whole prayer, that's, what's, that's what it's about. Uh, so let's go to verse 15, and I'm going to wrap up here. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Worship team, you can make your way up. You see, the disciples were really troubled that Jesus was going to leave. But he told them very clearly, I will not leave you as orphans. Okay? Now, we often think that the Christian walk is a walk of principles. You read your Bible, you learn the principles, you do some things like you go to church and you just follow that lifestyle and you're going to be blessed. That's not true. No offense, but not even close. Um, Jesus said, I am not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. Now, you tell me, do you think that the apostles sitting there, having walked with Jesus for three years, if Jesus was telling them, from now on, it's a life of principles, that they wouldn't feel like orphans? Of course they would, because that's what would have happened, right? He's telling them the Holy Spirit on the inside is comparable with having me on the flesh. You are not going to feel as orphans. His presence in your life will be so real that it'll be just like as if I was walking with you. So I've been sitting here 
like, you know, like Kafenia with Jesus would be awesome. Guys, we have it. You don't need that. I mean, I'll take it if Jesus wants to give me that any day. But we don't need that because we have the Holy Spirit. And walking with the Spirit of truth is such a real thing that it's like just having Jesus on, in the flesh. I wanna, I'm going to wrap up by reading this uh, stanza here from this poem that this other person wrote that I think encapsulates this well. Um, having the Holy Spirit on the inside for this journey is more than skin and bone can offer. You're consistent through and through. Other loves just imitation. They cannot compare to you. Deeper than infatuation, than the rush of something new. This is soul inhabitation. You're in me and I'm in you. Jesus wanted to be in here. He wanted the closest level of friendship imaginable, possible. That's what he wants with you. He doesn't want you to be overcome by your failures, by your weakness. He doesn't want you to be overcome when he does things that you don't understand. He wants you to walk with him, you and him and he and you. Is that what we want? Thank you for joining us today. If you need prayer for anything, you can email us at prayer at cobblestonechurch.com or you can go on our website at www.cobblestonechurch.com and submit it there. We'd love to pray for you. Have a great week and God bless.